passage that I read, and in particular the verse that I highlighted, verse 38. <coughs> In 1891, Pope, uh, Pope Leo XIII, I do not quote him as an authority, but Pope Leo XIII sent around an encyclical uh, which uh, spoke about Mary. And he said, uh, nothing is bestowed on us except through Mary, as God himself wills. Therefore, as no one can draw near to the Supreme Father except through the Son, so also no one can scarcely draw near to the Son except through his mother. That is not true. Uh, there is much that is profoundly unbiblical and deeply offensive about the Roman Catholic teaching concerning Mary. Uh, we're not going to focus on that or delve into that because I think it would be uh, unedifying. Truth be told, there's not a lot said about Mary in the New Testament. She's referred to only twice outside of the Gospels. And even in the Gospels, not much is told to us about her. Uh, she only speaks about 22 words. And most of what we learn about Mary is told to us uh, by the Gospel writer Luke. However, what is told to us about Mary is remarkable. And our text this morning sets before us an example of really exceptional faith and godliness. So we've looked at the passage already on two occasions, and we've tried to find out what it tells us about God. And we tried to find out what it tells us about the Lord Jesus. And uh, this morning, we want to think about uh, what we can learn from Mary's example. For Mary is a sinner saved by grace, and Mary is also an example to all the saints. So what do we learn about Mary from the text and the passage? Well, first of all, we learn that she is an example of great faith. Mary is an example, <clears throat> excuse me, of great faith. And what I want to do under this heading is to make a statement and then ask a question. And the statement is this, that Mary had great faith. Charles Spurgeon writes, a little faith will bring your souls to heaven, and great faith will bring heaven to your souls. So if you have great faith, You'll know the blessing of God. And Mary had great faith, and we want her example of great faith to inspire us to have great faith as well, so that we might know the blessing and enjoyment that comes to those who have great faith in the Lord Jesus. And notice what is said in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So Mary had great faith, and we know it because she believed God for the impossible. I mean, read what the angels said. Read what is told about what is going to happen to Mary 
how she's going to conceive, to whom she is going to give birth. And you know that Mary believed God for that which is impossible. Now, Sarah struggled to believe God for the impossible. When we think about Abraham and Sarah, we know that, that Sarah struggled to believe God for the impossible. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, two angels, uh, the Lord and two angels appear to Abraham. And um, this is what happens in Genesis chapter 18 and beginning at verse 9. Genesis 18 and verse 9. They said to him, that is, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now Sarah is confronted then with the impossible, and God says that the impossible will be overcome, and they will have a child, and Sarah's response to that is to laugh. And I'm pointing out Sarah, and I'm pointing out the fact that she laughs at the declaration and promise of God, not to throw stones at her, but simply to say that that's what she did, and remind you that you and I would probably respond in the same way. Because it is a stunning thing to be called upon to believe what she was asked to believe. Now, the fact of the matter is that Abraham did believe. Abraham did accept the word of God at face value. Turn to Romans chapter 4, and we see Paul's uh, uh, description of Abraham's response. Romans chapter 4, and beginning at verse 19. And Paul writes this, He, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham's response is different from Sarah's, and Sarah laughs because her faith wavers. Abraham's faith does not waver because he is convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. Now, it's not as if Abraham's head was in the clouds. He wasn't an ostrich sticking his head in the ground. He wasn't ignoring uh, the physical and the biological realities of the situation. 
He considered, that is, he thought about, and he understood the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He knew exactly what the situation was. He also was very well aware that he himself was as good as dead. So he's aware of these things, but he also knows who God is. And he also knows this, our God is in heaven, and he does all that he pleases. That's Psalm 115 and verse 3. So Abraham knows, if God promises, if he says, I will do it, he is able to do it. And you can take that promise to the bank, and that's great faith. Great faith accepts God's word at faith value, and that's what Mary did. It's absolutely astounding when you read what the angel said, and then at the conclusion of it, she says, well, be it unto me according to your word. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. And let it happen as you have said. She believes then this extraordinary declaration. So Mary had great faith. That's the statement. And the question is this. Do you have great faith? You and I. Do we have great faith? Do you believe the way Mary believed? Is your concept of God as as vibrant and as vigorous, as full-orbed. Martin Luther writes about, um, about the miracles that are spoken about and described in the words of, of the angel. And in his description, he quotes uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. And he says, Bernard declared that there were three miracles here, uh, that God and man should be joined in this child, that a child, uh, rather, that the mother should remain a virgin, that Mary should have such faith as to believe that the mystery would be accomplished in her. And the last is not the least of these three. The virgin birth is a mere trifle for God, says Luther. That God should become a man is a greater miracle. But most amazing of all is that the maiden should credit the announcement that she, rather than some other virgin, had been chosen to be the mother of God. So there are extraordinary things going on here, extraordinary declarations made by the angel, and Mary believes it. And Luther says, that's a miracle. That's astonishing. That is great faith. And really, you believe that what the angel declared actually happened. Jesus, we believe, is the God-man. He is that unique, unique individual who is both God and man, one person and two natures. How extraordinary. We believe that Mary's was a virgin conception. That which cannot happen, happened. And Mary conceived. Absolutely astounding by the amazing power of God. And so, yes, she believed, and, and we believe. And we believe that God has that kind of power. But still the question is, do we have great faith? Because do you now believe the implications of that? Do you believe the implications of the declaration that God has that kind of power? Listen to J.C. Ryle. 
Riles says, with him who called the world into being and formed it out of nothing, everything is possible. Do you believe that? When you look at your life and when you live your life in this world and you carry on your pilgrimage, do you believe that with God nothing is impossible? And when you heard that question asked or the statement made, nothing is too hard for the Lord, do you believe that? Ryle goes on. He says, there is no sin too bad to be pardoned. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made the heart of flesh. There is no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ strengthening us. There is no trial too hard to be born. The grace of God is sufficient for us. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's words will never pass away. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. When God is for us, who can be against us? The angel's receipt is an invaluable remedy. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Faith <clears throat> never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. So, do you believe that God can save others? Do you believe that God is able to save those people that you pray for every day? The people you've been praying for for decades. The people who seem impervious to gospel proclamation. The people whose hearts, after decades now, are still so hard. Do you believe God can save them? The people who are more precious to you than life itself. And you're beginning to understand what Paul wrote about in Romans 9, 1 to 5. You're beginning to have an inkling of what that's really like, that passion that he has for his people. You understand that. It's your heart bleeds for them. But it's been so long. And they seem so hard. You go to Matthew chapter 19, 23 to 26. You read about the apostles saying... Lord, if what you said is true, remember the Lord Jesus said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to the kingdom of God. And they say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you believe that? You see the power of God. You see the power of God <clears throat> here at the Nativity in these miracles virgin conception divine and human come together in one person you see the power of God on the cross where atonement is made where propitiation is offered and accepted where souls are rescued where the price is paid by the Lord Jesus where, where sin and Satan are conquered you see the power of God in the resurrection where Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God. 
And the answer that all of that affords us is that yes, God can save these people. There is power to rescue the perishing. There is power to plow up the stoniest ground of the human heart. And so we are not without hope when it comes to these people who are so precious to us. God can save them. God can save you. See, God is right. There are people who, who think that, well, they're too far gone. They think they're, they're too long been lost. They've been in the far country for far too long. They have done too many things. They have done horrific things. They have sunk far too deep for them ever to be lifted up. And maybe you think that, but it's not true. And the Lord Jesus still holds his arms wide open. And he still issues the invitation. And he still extends the call. And he still says, come to me and I will give you rest. He is an eager and a sufficient Savior. Can the Lord save them? Yes, he can. Can the Lord save you? Yes, he can. Can the Lord help you? You're a Christian now. Can he help you? Can he give you all that you need to, to live in this world? Can he give you what you need to face uh, the coming week and the coming months and the coming years? Well, yes, he can. We read in Psalm 138, On the day I called, you heard and you answered. In my strength of soul, you increase. God can help you. Listen to a man by the name of Donald McLeod. He's talking about omnipotence. He says, There is nothing greater in the life of the church than to see men and women temperamentally and constitutionally weak and fragile, and able to endure what would make strong men quake, able to be patient in affliction, content whatever their circumstances, and making melody in their hearts and in all things. That is the acme of Christian achievement and one of the most moving accomplishments of omnipotence. It's the high point. It's the acme of Christian achievement, and it's a manifestation of the power of God that Christians like you and I, ordinary Christians, able to endure extraordinary suffering and honoring God throughout. And I've witnessed it with my own eyes over the years. And I've seen it in the people we are familiar with. And I dare say you and I have experienced it personally. And many's the night when you and I have been able to lay our heads on the pillow, the pillow of God's omnipotence, and rest soundly and securely before our loving Father. So can God help us? This God, absolutely. We believe Him. And we trust Him. But maybe you say, well, you know, um, to be honest with you, my faith is weak. And to be honest with you, I feel more of a kinship with Sarah than with Abraham. And I've often laughed the laugh of Sarah because my faith is weak. Well, I understand that. 
Very well. But you see, Mary not only inspires us to great faith, but she also points us in the direction of how we can be strengthened in our faith. How can I have faith like that? Well, Mary points us in the direction of how we can have faith like that. Because if you watch Mary, a little later on in the chapter, you read her Magnificat, verses 46 to 56. And when you read that, what you find is that Mary is steeped in the Holy Scriptures. She has the Old Testament. Um, and Mary is steeped in that. She knows her Bible. And when you read that Magnificat, you'll see that there are quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures. There are allusions to the Old Testament Scriptures. Almost every phrase is rooted in the Old Testament. And for instance, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 2 and look at the prayer of Hannah, you will find that there's a tremendous similarity between that prayer and Mary's song. See, Mary knows the Holy Scriptures. She knows her Bible. Now, Mary's young. She's not a whole lot older than Joseph. She's a young woman. And uh, Mary probably didn't have a Bible. You and I have multiple Bibles with us. Mary probably didn't have a Bible. Uh, she learned it in synagogue. Uh, she may well have been illiterate. Uh, but she's memorized great swaths of the Old Testament. I mean, this hymn just comes pouring out of her. Because the scripture, scriptures are in her heart. She's very Bunyan-like, you know. She has Bibline as well as Bunyan does. She's familiar with the, with the word. And she knows her God. She has a great concept of God because she's familiar with his word. And so you and I then want more and more to be men and women of the word. So that we might be men and women of great faith. We'll know the word. Our faith will grow. And we'll be able to rest our heads on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Great faith. Inspiring. That's the first thing. Secondly, humble submission. Humble submission. Mary's being informed about extraordinary privileges which would be hers. But uh, she would have understood with uh, a good degree of clarity that uh, the privileges notwithstanding there were going to be very difficult things that she would have to deal with. The road ahead was going to be a, a hard road. And when she says behold the servant of the Lord be it unto me according to your word uh, she's aware of the difficulties that must inevitably come. And she is being thankful for the blessings, all the while submitting to the difficult will of God, because that will of God is going to involve great trouble and great difficulty and great challenges. And really what's happening in verse 38 is that she is walking humbly with her God, Micah 6.8. And that's why we sang that hymn earlier. Because this hymn writer has put into poetic uh, form and expression exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about here, this humble submission. Listen again. He says, Then the Spirit of the Highest on a virgin meek came down, and he burdened her with blessing, and he pained her 
with renown. Some blessings come with burdens. And some renown cuts us to the quick. We're called to submit, you and I. All the saints of God are called to submit. And sometimes the saints of God have to face and carry on through the frowning providences of God. And deal with the burdens uh, that uh, even blessings may bring. In John 8.41, we read about the fact that, that 30 years after this, they were still talking about Mary. 30 years on, they were still slandering her. And these religious leaders say to Jesus, We were not born of sexual immorality. We are not illegitimate children the way you are. You see, when Mary gets this news, it means wonderful things, to be sure. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it also means that her reputation is shot. It means that she may, she may well lose her fiancé, her betrothed. Because Mary, in all likelihood at this point, she thinks he's going to divorce me. Which he was about to until divine intervention took place. And sooner rather than later, the gossip mongers, well, their tongues were going to start wagging, and 30 years later they hadn't stopped. And so she knew trouble was coming her way. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Roman soldier named Pantera, Tiberius Pantera. There's one of the church fathers named, named Origen who, who writes about the fact that there are a lot of people who said that, that Tiberius Pantera was the Roman soldier who impregnated this girl Mary, and Jesus was thus an illegitimate child. So they not only slandered her, they not only said that there's something terrible going on here, but they had a name for the man. Well, Mary would have known that there's trouble ahead. But she submits to the frowning providences of God. She would not only suffer in that way, but she would suffer in other ways. That way would not be clear to her. But it was hinted at in chapter 2 and verse 35 where Simeon says, A sword is going to pierce your heart. And so for Mary, the cross awaits. And there will come a moment when she will look up and she will see her son dying on a Roman gibbet. So really, it's a remarkable thing that she does. It's a remarkable statement that she makes. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And God's people, I'm saying, are always called to submit. We're always called to submit to difficulty. Always called to submit to the suffering that in the providence of God comes our way. You see it throughout the scriptures. You think of the three men in Daniel, chapter 3. And they say, we will not bow down to your gods. God can deliver us. 
He may deliver us, he may not deliver us, and even if he doesn't deliver us, we would rather burn than disobey him. So yes, we submit to the, the difficulties that in the providence of God may come our way. We submit to that. David and Shimei, 2 Samuel 16. Shimei curses God and pours down abuse on him. Have you ever been called names? Has your name ever been dragged through the mud? That's what happened to David. And people want to chop Shimei's head off. David says, no, it's the Lord. Let him speak. Or take Job. Job has everything taken away. And his response to that is to say the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so with praise he submits. And later on Job will say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And so with joy and with confidence in God, he submits to the frowning providences of the Lord. We're called to submit to suffering. I can never think of that verse without thinking of Heather's sister-in-law who died of cancer when she was 40 and who wrote that verse out, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. While she was dying of cancer and as her family watched on, she put that verse there for all to see and wanted everyone to know, though he slay me, I mean literally slay me with cancer, I will trust in him. We're called to submit joyfully and cheerfully to the pains that God inflicts upon us in his providence. You think of Paul. Ananias is told to go and tell Paul all that he must suffer for my name's sake. Imagine starting a job and you're told, you start this job, there's going to be untold suffering. Get on with it. Well, that's what's happened to Paul. Go and tell Paul how much suffering he must endure for my name. That's the ministry I have for him. Not having his name in lights, not speaking to thousands, but look, here's your job description. You're going to suffer immensely. Called to submit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. The writer of Hebrews is talking to these people and he says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's astounding. And of course, then we go back to the example of Jesus, which I quoted to you earlier, Hebrews 10, 7. Jesus says, Behold, I've come to do your will. So as he enters into the world, Jesus says to God, and this is going to be the banner over his life, Behold, I've come to do your will. Yeah, but the will involves a cross. The will involves the unique God-man being put to death by Roman soldiers, being rejected by his people. It involves that. And Jesus says, yeah, I've come to do the will of God. That's absolutely astounding. So Mary stands in a tremendous tradition. Humble submission to the will of God, even when it's tough. And you and I need to line up in that tradition as well. We're willing to suffer. We don't expect from God or demand from God, though perhaps we're sometimes tempted to, that our pathway should be a bed of roses. No. It's going to be tough. And we're not surprised by that. And we're called to submit to that. And Jesus is our greatest example. And Mary is one too. We're called to submit but now also we're enabled to submit. 
because it's not easy. We need, we need divine enablement. Because to be honest with you, I don't want to suffer. I don't like suffering. I like things to be easy. So how, how can you do it? How do you grow in being able to, to joyfully submit? Well, first of all, you, you understand who you are. You understand who you are. Behold, the servant of the Lord. She's a servant. She has no rights. Well, that cuts our, across the grain for us in North America because we're all about rights here. But Mary says, she sees herself before God. She says, well, I'm, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. Now, I have no rights. This is how the word servant, which is, can very appropriately be translated slave. It's the word doulos. I'm a slave. This is how it's, uh, it's defined. Devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. So I exist for God, not for me. Everybody in the world, especially in North America, and some Christians tell me that I need to live with an eye to my own benefit and blessing. But the Bible says, no, you check your ego and you check your rights at the door. Now you live for God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, you're not your own. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you and I. He says, you're not your own. You belong lock, stock, and barrel to God because he bought you. You are his by virtue of creation, and you are his by virtue of redemption. He made you out of nothing. He saved you by his blood, and you belong to him. Everything you are and everything you have, everything belongs to him. And you live for him, and you exist for him, and he can do with you what he wants. This is not about you. Your life is not about you. Your life's about him. And you, you stand right next to Mary. You say, well, behold, we're the slaves of God. That's how you see your life today. You're a slave of God. So understand who you are, and then understand who God is. Understand who God is. Well, he's the God who loves you. And he's the God who's working out everything for your good. And even when the road is hard, it's the best road. Even when the road is hard, it's the wisest road. Because your God is good. And your God is wise. And he's planned your life. And Romans 8.28 is true. He's working everything out for your good. So you know who you are. You're a servant of that God. But who's that God? Well, he's good, and he's wise. And he's working everything out for my good. And then he brings me to glory. I don't know if you noticed um, what's said about those people in Hebrews 10.34. They joyfully accepted their loss. And it says, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
And so, yes, we, we can submit joyfully and thankfully to even the most difficult of providences because we know that we serve this great God who's working everything out for our good in this world, and he's bringing us to glory in the next. So um, Thomas Brooks says, your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, your reward sure, therefore faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Heaven at last will make amends for all. And the more hardships you find in the ways of God, the more sweet will heaven be to you when you come up there. So, yeah, press on. All is well. He's in control. And glory's waiting. Understand who we are. And understand who God is. So great faith in Mary. Humble submission. And lastly, singular privilege. Mary's privileges were singular. They were unique. She was extraordinarily blessed in ways that no one ever was or would be. Think about Mary's privileges. Mary would be the mother of Jesus. Mary would have him for 30 years. She'd be around him for 30 years. Mary bore the Son of God in her womb. She carried the incarnate God in her body. I don't even know how to start to talk about what a privilege that is. Mary would train up the child who had created her. Mary would nurse a baby who had fed her and would feed her all the days of her life. Mary taught truth to a toddler who, remember he's one person, who had given the Holy Scriptures to the world. Mary helped a child to walk who's really the one who gave her and would give her strength to move every day of her life. I mean, it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? The incarnation, uh, the miracle of the one person and the two natures in Jesus is astounding. And Mary's right there. She's part of it the way no one else would ever be or could ever be. What privileges she had. And in addition to that is the extraordinary truth of salvation. The salvation that her son would accomplish. And Simeon will say, let me now depart. I have seen your salvation. Mary not only saw her salvation, she held in her own arms her salvation. She fed at her own breast her salvation. Mary's privileges, singular privileges. But what about your privileges? I mean, I don't know the details of your life and how low the points have been that you've had to endure and, and all the struggles that you have and all the, all the, you know, all the disappointments that you carry into each day. I, I, don't, I don't know that, but I know this, that if you're a Christian, you are astoundingly privileged. Now this, this being 
who astonishes us. And you know him. And you know him intimately. You've talked to him today. And when you woke up today, you said, Thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you for life and breath that I might live for you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I don't have to worry today about the judgment day because your, your blood covers me. Your righteousness clothes me. And I know I'm bound for heaven. So thank you, Lord. And you just woke up and, and now you go into the day and you live for him. And you serve him and you glorify him. You're serving him today as we speak here. You're, you're serving the Lord Christ. And, and you're talking to him. Because I believe that as I'm preaching, you're praying. And you're talking to the Lord Jesus. This astounding being, you're on intimate terms with him. You can sing in your heart, I am his and he is mine. You have tremendous privileges. And you know that each and every day he's going to feed you, he's going to care for you. And as Spurgeon said, even the dust that blows across my street is under the control of God. The Lord Jesus is watching over you. There's never a day but that he's with you. There's never an hour but that you can turn to him. There's never a difficulty but that you can cry out to him. And when you call upon his name, he answers you. And your strength of soul, he increases. So you're tremendously privileged. Well, there you have it. She's a woman of great faith. She's a woman of humble submission. She's a woman of singular privilege. We want to appreciate our privileges even as we seek to imitate her trust and her submissive spirit. Three lessons quickly. First of all, appreciate grace. In light of all of this, you need to appreciate grace. Mary has, as the passage tells us, found favor with God. The reason she's so blessed is because grace has rested upon her. She has found favor with the Lord. And the reason you're so blessed is because you've found favor with the Lord. You've been saved by grace, Christian. And, you know, if you're not a Christian, you need to appreciate grace. You don't have to go out of here and say, okay, what do I, what do I have to do? I find that very attractive to be a Christian like that. I, and all those blessings, yeah, I want that. So, yeah, tell me what do I have to do to get it? Well, you have to do nothing. That's the thing. You have to stop doing stuff. And you need to trust the Lord. The man said to Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul says, well, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. And the children need to understand this as well, don't they? Because we all, you know, we're always saying to them, be good. You know, they're doing crazy stuff. And they say, well, be good. And if you're really twisted in your theology, you say, you call yourself a Christian and then you act like that? As if to say, you know, there's, there's works you need to do to be a Christian. No, we, we preach the gospel of grace to our kids, don't we? We tell them, look, no. Look, you're a bad kid. Let's, let's be honest. And you're a sinner just like me. But you can't save yourself. Children, you can't save yourself. You have to look to Jesus and ask him to save you. Just like us. That's all that happened to us. 
trusted the Lord Jesus and he saved us. And you trust the Lord Jesus, he'll save you. Not because of anything you do, not because of anything you've done, or anything you promise. You know, I'm going I'm to be good from now on. <laughs> it ain't going to work. And he'll save you by his grace. Because he's kind. Because he's loving. And so you ask him, and he'll save you. Appreciate grace. Secondly, understand suffering. Christian, we need to understand suffering. And we need to know that suffering in our lives as Christians, suffering will always result in blessing. It's not blessing we're going to always understand. It's, it's not blessing we can anticipate. But you read Romans 5, 1 to 5. You read James 1, 1 to 3. You read Hebrews 12 from about 5, verse 5 on. And you'll see that for the Christian, God doesn't bring suffering into our lives willy-nilly just for a laugh. No, he brings suffering into our lives for a purpose, for our benefit, for your growth, so that you might know him better, so that you can draw nearer to Christ, so that you can be more conformed to his image. And so we need to understand suffering. Suffering in our lives is always going to be resulting in our blessing. And furthermore, as I reminded you earlier, Romans 8, 28 is true. God is working on everything for our good. And then also blessing, or rather suffering, is going to result in the glory of God. People will watch you. They'll see you endure. And they'll give glory to God. They'll say, well now, how can he cope? How does he keep going on? How does she handle it? And they'll conclude, or they'll be told, nothing but omnipotence can get them standing up straight. Nothing but grace and power can keep them moving forward, and the glory goes to God and not to them. So you'll be an instrument of bringing glory to God as you suffer. So suffering will result in your benefit, and, and it'll result in God's glory. Again, Thomas Brooks, as our greatest good comes through the suffering of Christ, so God's greatest glory that he has from his saints comes through their suffering. So appreciate grace and, and understand suffering. And lastly, anticipate mystery. Anticipate mystery. We need to accept and understand and actually embrace the fact that there's a great deal of mystery in the Christian life. These things are deeply mysterious. Suffering is deeply mysterious. We say, why, Lord? I mean, why me? And why this? And why now? And why doesn't it stop? And why them? Why are they okay and I'm not? So we have all kinds of whys when it comes to suffering. And God doesn't always answer. You read Job. Job doesn't get a lot of answers. Job is told, look at me. At God. He's not given explanations to any great degree. But there are also other kinds of whys in the Christian life. We say, why am I suffering? But then we also say, why, Lord? Why, why have you saved me? Why should I be so privileged? Why should I be able to know Christ? 
how should I be able to look forward to glory? I know people, oh, I'm, I'm far, far more wicked than they are. And I'm going to heaven. And they're not, as far as I know. And, you know, we, we sing this. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Wilder's room? when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why, why do I have to suffer like this? But even more profoundly, why am I so blessed? Well, God help us to, to be able to say with Mary, behold, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. God, our Father, write your word upon our hearts. Cause it to bear much fruit for the benefit of our witness and for the glory of your name. We ask for Jesus.